everybody, this is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and as always, true, by my friend, my business partner. I, I think that, honestly, yeah. I think the listeners in their cars and at home are thinking to themselves, Joshua, I think what you mean is great friend. I, <laughs> I think they're thinking that to themselves right now, <laughs> if truth be told. I think that's not what's happening. I think someone's saying, I wish these guys would get on with it. Also, I have an itch on my butt. See, I've been telling you that for a whole year, and you've been telling me, nope, nobody's saying that. Nobody's (laughs) saying that. And I tell you every week, everybody is saying, get on with it. I'm just trying to be contradictory. (laughs) You keep your dick out of it. (laughs) What? Always the penis with you. Uh, This is the greatest hits episode. (laughs) Is that what that is? So, (laughs) What is that we do, what we do, that we do? Yeah, what is it that we do, that we do? What we do? I have to tell you. Go ahead. So we're sitting here in Seattle. Seattle, beautiful Seattle. And I'm just looking at the Olympic Mountains, and it's absolutely amazing. Okay, I got to look behind me. But this to my back. This is a longer preamble to say. Oh wow! This is Monday, yeah. uh, March 12th. Yep. On Wednesday, March 14, we're recording the live podcast at Westland. Very excited for that. I have for many months lost my podcast T-shirt. And for this trip, yeah, I went through all my clothing, uh-huh. and I found my podcast T-shirt. Was I supposed to bring my podcast T-shirt? Oh, classic Joshua! <laughs> classic. I brought my cat Sabbath T-shirt. You did. You're wearing it right I now. Know, it's yeah. very striking. I coincidentally am wearing my single cast nation T-shirt right now. Only <laughs> <laughs> one of us has a focus on branding for this <laughs> this enterprise of ours. <laughs> I had a guy last night ask me for a business card. I get that all the time. You don't who, get that? who does that? Who people? Who collects business cards? That's not collecting. It's just having them so they can contact. You. Just take a photo and move on. Move <laughs> That's along. Not help them contact Walk you. Walk on. They'll take a picture. They'll have a ghost on their phone. Jason singlecastnation.com. How easy is that? I'm wearing the t-shirt. <laughs> I've got the three <laughs> most important words covered on my t-shirt. <laughs> anyway, this is this yeah. is all a roundabout way of saying what it is, what we do, that we do mm. will be emblazoned upon my chest come Wednesday evening. Right. I'm excited. So what is it what we do that we do? Independent bottling company called Single Cast Nation. Yeah, love it. Three whiskey festivals. Scotchwhiskey.com just named us one of the ones that you absolutely must visit. In yeah, top 10. Thank you very much to them. Uh, called Whiskey Jubilee, and the Seattle one is on March 15. We will have a follow-up yeah, podcast. the day after that this one goes live. Yep. Exactly. Uh, we lead Whiskey Tours of Scotland called Whiskey Geek Tours. Mm-hmm. Got one coming up in May, another one coming up in October. And we run this podcast. That we do. Huzzah! Yeah, look at that. Which either goes out bi-monthly or bi-weekly, but nobody can really work out what the bi means in either of those two conjunctions. Are you here to buy, or are you just curious? It's, that's the thing. When it comes to the question of, our, is our podcast bi-weekly or bi-monthly, I am bi-curious. <laughs> so uh, we are going to make this intro kind of short because... <laughs> I think that's a lie. Let me check the counter here. <laughs> Four and a half minutes. No, so, there's no. stuff that we had to okay, cut out okay, because you are being a dafty. Okay, we're at um, okay. So we're making this short because you and I, Jason, back in January... Mm-hmm. 
when we were in Scotland, actually our first trip was uh, was a stop with David Stirk. Our first trip? What do you mean by first trip? Did I say first, our first trip, trip our first stop on that trip. Uh, that makes much more sense. Yeah, that's okay. what I meant. First trip made no sense. It, it, it's, it's not always that things that come out of my mouth make sense. Are you drunk? I'm not drunk. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we, on our first stop on that trip Hink. in January, <laughs> we met with David Stirk. We did. And this was actually a second meeting with David Stirk because David kicked off this entire podcast. He did. And, and we will forever be grateful to him for that. We sat down. In his new bottling hall, January of 2017, mm-hmm. had no idea. We said this many, many times, but we had no idea what we were doing. And we recorded 17 minutes of footage <laughs> with David Stirk, thinking yeah. that will make up the bulk of our 30-minute bi-weekly slash bi-monthly slash bi-curious podcast. Yeah, we, we thought that if we recorded 17 minutes with him, we would just have to come up with 13 minutes to round out that half hour. Uh, I told my wife that the the live podcast on Wednesday night is sold out, that people have bought tickets to listen to us talk. And she she shook her head and the, the imminent demise of the world is afoot. Um, she cannot believe that anybody would pay good money to listen to us witter on. Well, let's be honest here. Some people paid good money. I was going to say, let's be honest here, there's free whiskey involved. <laughs> <laughs> but some people, like Whiskey Jubilee ticket holders, got, are getting into the podcast for free as part of being a Whiskey Jubilee ticket holder. It's a, a value-added uh, perk. But even the say. fact they would they would take their Wednesday evening to go to a live podcast recording of us. It must be Matt Hoffman. He must be the draw. He's he's Maybe. the sex on a stick Maybe. that we're putting out front. I think I saw that movie. Moving on. So should we <laughs> <laughs> should we use that as the perfect seg into David Stirk? Yeah, so let me just say this. So so our first time with David, we showed up with just a handheld recorder. And, you know, this was us as infants, as podcasting infants. And fast forward a year later, and you and I have this wonderful new podcasting system, <laughs> lapel mics, the whole thing. We have become something much larger than we were back then. So it's pretty pretty excited to have this whole new recording system. I'm also going to add that as I look across our hotel room yeah. in Seattle, yeah. that's not the recording unit that we had on the dash of our car as we went around Scotland. This one is even bigger with more knobs. Yeah, so we had to go from a four <laughs> input to a 20 input. Because now we have a live podcast, Jason. <laughs> Every time I turn my back, you buy more equipment. You're welcome. <laughs> wow, that, that is a striking piece of equipment. Do we still That's have the said. other one for car drives? Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> I, I was going to sell it, but then I realized... Um, it's only probably, money. It's only money. <laughs> we got whiskey to be selling <laughs> to make up for... What did you say? How many inputs on this one? 20? Oh, I saw that movie. So anyway, we're going to... Uh, Volume 6. Yeah. 
So we're going to move on over to the interview with David, who, like you had said, our first one was 17 minutes. This one was close to an hour yeah. and 13. Yeah, he's such a whiskey nerd, whiskey geek. Yeah, he he yeah. enjoys the application of that term as much as we do. He owns it as much as we yeah. do. And I, I really think we delved into a number of subjects oh, that, yeah. that we only just crested the waves in our first episode. And so I love the opportunity to be sitting with David and, and delve deeper into the conversation with him. And sincerely, as always, thanks to him for his time. Mm-hmm. And as you had mentioned in a, in a previous podcast, this is a bit more on the chatty side, yeah. a, little, a little bit more like our Ian McAllister that we had, uh, mm-hmm. our most recent Graham Cool and Ian Allen was very chatty. Yeah, sure. It, w- it was this, you know, it was just us sitting down yeah. together, yep. having a conversation about whiskey. Exactly. Yeah. So without further ado, David Sturk. So Josh and I were talking. Oh, that yeah. after last January when we, we did our very first interview with you, we had no scooby what we were doing. We None. had no scooby what our expectations were. Really? And <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you uh-huh. and All the right. dog you rode in on. And take two. <laughs> and we, we came away from the interview with you with 17 minutes. And in the very beginning of setting up the podcast, we were thinking... An episode might be 30 minutes, it might be 40 minutes long. And we're now very much in the habit of doing 100-minute episodes. Yeah. And a 17-minute interview is a blip in a radar. And so we've been talking all through 2017. Next time we see you, we're going to sit down and have a proper conversation with you. Now, the downside is, just like this time last year, we've taken up an afternoon of your time. You're away from your wife. You're away Mm -hmm. from your two Mm -hmm. kids. You're missing dinner. And until the dinner bit, it was all good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be having dinner with us. I think we're all cold and hungry. <laughs> I think there's a reason we had 17 minutes last year. And so starting now, let's go for 30 minutes. We're going to do 30 minutes? <laughs> okay. You up for that? Oh, you guys know I can't talk for 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> now you. Um, we'll keep so, the jokes to minimum. <laughs> You and I, actually, I asked you about this a little bit before. And I, I know you listened to your episode. I know you listened to the Mark Watt episode. I don't know if you continue to listen to. I won't be upset if you don't. Leading question. Um, I'm a busy man. I'm a busy man, Joshua. <laughs> is it going to be a test? <laughs> <laughs> but generally what we do is we'll record a conversation and then bring in bits and bobs of that conversation and, and plug it into sort of a larger podcast. But the question that I had it was something you and I discussed earlier. We were talking about caramel coloring. And you had told me a story, and we, we want to keep this as incredibly generic as possible so as to protect the innocent. But you had a very interesting story about your foray into the possibility of a blend, if I remember correctly, and, and your experience with choosing a blend or potentially choosing a blend and how caramel coloring would go into that. And I was just hoping you could share that while protecting those who need to be protected. (laughs) Part of me wants to say there are no innocents when it comes to caramel coloring. Um, Yeah, so it's not something I have ever been exposed to really in my working life because my uh, time with other companies has 
been with companies that are very anti-caramel coloring. Mm -hmm. So predominantly Springbank and Cadenheads, who I sort of cut my teeth with and um, learnt my chops and all the other things, ways you want to say it. You know, they they are the big proclaimers against caramel coloring. They make a big point that the casks are not caramel colored and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So uh, clearly my my very little time blending with them, which would have been seconds, because they don't do much blending. Uh, you never see caramel colouring. Don't know it, didn't know it. Um, but I did come across it later on, and it was this horrible, sticky, burnt, sugary stuff. I uh, didn't think much of it, and that was it. Until, as you say, I, I was contemplating creating a blend for a local charity called uh, Devil's Porridge, which is still yeah. a great name for a blend. That's really good. Um, yeah. But it never happened. But anyway, I, I went to see a, a, a large blender who showed me around, fantastic, fantastic company, fantastic people, and at the end they gave me a few samples to try. And one of them was bad. I mean, really bad. Mm -hmm. So bad that you would, despite trying to be as diplomatic as possible in their their company, (laughs) in their offices, uh, I think my face displayed my dismay at how bad this blend was. How... When you say bad, what what does that mean? What what, what oh, was bad about it? It, it the nose was um, the only word that popped in my head. There was farty. <laughs> the, no, the nose was farty. It was okay. eggy. It was so uh, some sherry, young, sulfury. Not it, not even sulfury. Yeah. Uh, just um, manure-y. Ooh, yeah, Uh, not good. And young, aggressive, nose prickle galore, uh, no malt, so no malt notes at all. Oh, okay. Um, Not even the creaminess you'd expect from grain. Just bad. Just uh, as if somebody had taken a very bad spirit and put it in a bottle. Um, uh, These were just nosing, so I didn't taste these at all. Um, And the dismay was obviously. Uh, seen by the people I was with and a blender chief head whatever this person was uh, said to me oh don't worry about that the caramel will neutralize all of that Um, which floored me absolutely stuck me to the floor and I I, I didn't know what to say I mean I was something you guys have never seen speechless the same (laughs) car. (laughs) <laughs> That's very true. The same caramel colouring that doesn't affect flavour in the yeah, slightest. that one. Yeah. Will yeah. now take care of yeah. forty notes. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's what floored me hmm. uh, because you are led to believe that uh, so little of it is used that it, it doesn't affect flavour. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, now I think ninety nine percent of the time that's probably the case. We're talking about something that was three years one day and travel time to the bottling hole that was to be sold in a market where, quite frankly, it was probably either never drunk or drunk with something yeah. that was equally as bad, you know, be it a fizzy drink or something. Yeah. So I don't want to cast any aspersions that the industry is is covering up some great conspiracy that <clears throat> we can make whatever we want and just... Uh, override it with caramel colouring. The point of me disclosing this is because there are still people out there trying to tell you that caramel colouring does not affect flavour. Well, either that person is wrong or the person being paid a lot of money to create blends for a very large company is wrong. Um, You pick which one you want to believe. 
Well, I, th- I think it's a really interesting conversation because, you know, episode in, episode out, Jason and I try to bring up some sort of a, a misconception of, you know, people, and we talked about this in, in the first episode with you, people have misconceptions because they don't quite understand the industry. Sometimes it's not very clear. Sometimes there's not much of much transparency. But in this case, you're told by many that caramel coloring won't do anything other than add coloring. And that comes from the top down, you know, from brand ambassadors, from, from I, I wouldn't say marketing because it's never really marketed, but that's the conversation from the brands that, oh, it, it's not going to affect the flavor. So it's a misconception. It's almost forced upon people. Yeah, I think you're right. And, 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 and I would like to, you know, backtrack a little bit and say I, probably in 99.9% or 99% or even 95% of the cases, it, the, the amounts are so minute that it would take a trained sniffer, pallet, dog type mm, thing mm-hmm. to, to discover it. Uh, we more mortal humans, you know, with our terrible taste mm-hmm. and smell probably can't. But yeah, yeah. if you are picking up a $5.99 bottle of Glen cabbage, you are more than likely <laughs> going to have yeah. enough caramel coloring in there to disguise whatever it is they don't want you to taste. So there is a flip side to this. The people who are out talking about the brand's that are probably correctly saying, yes, it's yeah, made no difference, yeah. are correct. Because the bargain basement bottom of the shelf brands that tend not to have brand ambassadors going around <laughs> the world mm. uh, buying you one of their expensive or their inexpensive whiskeys in a bar or something like that. So it, it's not, I, you know, I'm not trying to shatter anybody's faith in a wonderful industry and I'm not trying to ruffle any feathers. I just want it to be known that caramel coloring does, if it's used in the right quantity or wrong quantity, mm. will affect flavor, definitely. Very interesting. I, and to those people who say it doesn't, I want you to go get some, and I'll send you a sample, because I've got quite a bit of it now. That's another story. Um, <laughs> that just put me in, the, in a world of hurt, didn't it? Um, <laughs> I'll send you some. I want you to taste it. I want you to try, put a little tiny bit, put it in your mouth. And then I want you to, to physically... Uh, think about whether or not that could affect something. It is quite a bitter taste. So Um, you tasted it alone? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I had people with me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Just alone in a room. (laughs) (laughs) Me and my caramel coloring. But just just to be very clear here, you, you talk about having caramel coloring here for use, but when it comes to exclusive malts, exclusive regions, exclusive blends, exclusive rums. It's not going into those products. It definitely isn't, and okay. my nose did not go anywhere. No, 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 it isn't. No, no. That, that is, the reason I have it is because I have, uh, I'm a bottler, and I bottled a very large blend that is going to the Far East, and they demanded a certain color. Yeah. Um, okay. And also, I was then able to try said blend before and said blend after, and it is different. Wow. So, um, yep. you know, and I, I do not profess to have any sort of God-given talent at picking out caramel coloring in anything at all. Mm. Uh, We've all got fairly equal palettes. But, um, you know, because a lot of people said to me, oh, they've done experiments and in a blind tasting and this, that and the other. 
You're talking about tiny quantities, I think. I think I really think you are talking about tiny quantities and you're, you're talking about a superficial environment where you're predisposed to look one way or the other. Yeah. Um, and maybe I am too. Maybe I'm predisposed to think, oh yeah, there's colouring in there, it's going to taste such and such. But just, you know, uh, I, I think, acknowledge it, it can make a change to flavour but also acknowledge that for the vast majority of cases, do you know what? Don't worry about it. It's mm. minute quantities. Mm-hmm. So talk us through it for a second then. You've got the container, you stick your finger in the E150A, you pull it out and you stick that finger in your mouth. You started to suggest Are we still that talking about caramel coloring? <laughs> every time, here? Do you, every time. Do you eat with that mouth? <laughs> <laughs> Little Jack Horner, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so you... you well, look, hey, hey, I tell you what, we're, we're, we're live on air... <laughs> Why don't I go get some and you guys try it? Let's yes. do it. Let's do it. Oh, my gosh. So this is uh, David. He's taking off do his do lapel do mic. Do yeah. Do That's just terrific. This is, this is fantastic. 158, straight in the mouth. Ooh. I think I saw that movie. Volumes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're trying to cover for you. You keep digging the hole deeper for yourself. So this is called E-150A, Straight in the Mouth, Volume 7. <laughs> <laughs> Jason wow. and Josh do Thornhill. <laughs> wow. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so it is syrupy. It is molasses dark. Black, yeah, right? it's molasses black. It's when I thought of caramel coloring, I thought, you know, it's just this sort of fluid that's dark. Right, but well, it's first of all, just smell it. Yeah, okay, smelling it. Oh, it's it is it's bitter. It's Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Thank you. It's I mean it smells like burnt caramel. That's interesting. Oh. The the traditional way of eating this is to put it on the end of a teaspoon. Just <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea where this teaspoon right, has been go. before this. All right, are you, are you, you know, uh, Jason, you give okay. it a nose. What do you I'm smell? Out. It is very acrid. Yeah. It's molasses ramped up to 100. It's funny, actually. It reminds me of a toffee apple that I used to get as a, as a much younger boy around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very pronounced sugar on it. Yeah. Okay, you taste it. Yeah, yeah, that was me filling oh, air oh, while you right. tasted it. Oh, shit, that. I was supposed to taste. Okay, so. Just stick the whole thing in your mouth. Oh, shit. Oh. It's bitter as all hell. Oh, my gosh. It's sharp. It's bitter. Oh, yeah. That's horrible. There's initially there's almost like a gasoline kerosene kind of thing. Industrial, yeah. oily, oh. burnt petroleum. Fucking hell, and they put this in whiskey. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you can see why a little goes a long way though. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, again, if you're using it specifically for color, this is black as night. I'm surprised how accurate it is. And just so they know, how much did you taste? I mean, what did you do? Uh, Put a few... Uh, yeah. A drop's worth? A, yeah. a hundredth of a gram? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're not talking that you just swallowed a teaspoon. No, 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 no. He, so what David did was he, he took the, the end or basically, you know, the handle of a spoon, dipped it into the, the little jar that has the caramel coloring in it, and just the tip of it. So you just played that little game, just the tip... <laughs> 
And uh, I'm gonna give it another taste here. It is. It is interesting though. I can't stop going back for just a little more. It's horrible. It's and like yet, burnt wet cardboard. Oh, but it's you awful. get the woodiness from it. You could see the way in which this would cask influence. Could you? You can see how that would neutralize. Something. Oh yeah. But I can also see how enough used could really affect the whiskey itself. Yep. Oh. I really appreciate that taste of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Look at that. It's much darker than ever imagined. I'm trying to clean it off the handle of the spoon, and it's not easy to do that. Oh, are you? You should try uh, using it as a coloring agent. (laughs) We have to put it into hot water and let it dissolve and then add it to the whiskey. Okay, uh, so you don't just add the straight syrup. No. No, it's Okay. And is there a ratio? Is it X number of drops to X number of liters sort of a thing? Well, it it very much depends on color. How do you want to do or not? Yeah. I I said nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for that experience. Uh, So moving away from caramel coloring... Um, you've been in the whiskey industry now for a dozen years, 13, 13. years? We're uh, one it, year away from 20. So as creative whiskey company. Oh, sorry, 13. Okay. A baker's dozen. But, but you personally, two decades. Yeah. Closing down on two decades. One of the things I feel like we always talk about when we see each other is where the industry's going. Um, mm-hmm. Here we are, industry podcast, one year removed from our first interview with you. What do you see today? in the whiskey industry? What do you think is coming in the next year, next five years? What do you anticipate? It's a good question. And I'd, I'd love to hear back, because I think you asked me one year ago, where did I see my company in the next, uh, uh-huh. whatever it was. Uh-huh. I'd love to listen. I need to go back to the podcast and see what I said. <laughs> so hopefully I said, sitting on the other side of the room. Because uh, I am. Um, well, I, the obvious answer to that is we are about to have the third, second, third, fourth largest deluge of brand new distilleries open their warehouses in the 400-year history of the industry. So, um, you know, after the great booms of the, the, the 1820s, the 1880s, 1890s, possibly the 1960s, this is, this is one of the biggest boom periods the industry's ever seen yep. and by far the most profitable um, period the industry has ever seen. And um, and for that, I don't just necessarily mean the money the industry makes. I mean the, the impact it makes on the lives of the people around it. Hmm. And that's probably one of the best things that's ever happened. So for the future, yeah, we've, we've got... Um, let's put it this way. You've got a whiskey shop. And currently, you're a good shop. You've got two, 300 malts. Well, you're about to have... 20, 30, 40, 50 new distilleries all trying to get shelf space in your shop. Uh, Coupled with uh, the continual barrage of things like my company does and other companies, the exploration of existing companies, of distilleries that have been bought out, the new malts from all the distilleries. So we're going to have quite a swamped malt market. Is the growing demand uh, for the sector going to keep up. That's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Um, Certain markets like the US, I think some brands are going to struggle because 
the US is struggling now to sell what it makes, never mind what we ship yeah. over. The funny thing is other markets where their own uh, distillery successes uh, have been recent has seen an absolute surge in scotch. So Australia is a phenomenal example. Mm. Didn't have a whiskey industry until, I don't know, 15 years ago. Mm. Get a few good write-ups, get a few good distilleries, a couple of bad write-ups. And then all of a sudden, um, there's a demand for scotch whiskey. So swings and roundabouts in certain uh, aspects of the industry. But that's one thing's for certain. We're going to see an absolute uh, barrage of new brands on the table. So you were suggesting earlier when we were going around the warehouses that there are almost two tiers of whiskey connoisseurship, enjoyment, purchasing, marketing, call it what you will. And on one hand, you seem to be suggesting that we've got maybe a name we've used previously on the podcast, but someone like a Macallan who are known for $500 bottles, $1,500 bottles, $4,000 bottles. Mm. But, and, and there are other brands that fit that. Um, but then you also seem to be suggesting there are brands that maybe aren't as well known that will be able to continue to sell at a good price with good product to people who know their whiskies. Um, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit on how you see that kind of <clears throat> two-tier yeah, well, the, the, the two-tiered na- uh, nature, certainly in pricing, has come around because of a, uh, a lack of certain types of whiskey. So whilst we will see a deluge of brand new malts come on the market, you're going to see less and less older expressions of everything. That is just simple uh, physics or mathematics mm. or whatever you want mm. to call it. Uh, you don't have to be a genius to work that out. Um, it does remind me of that wonderful uh, tour at Springbank. Uh, we went round and uh, Jim was giving the tour and he said, today we're bottling the 10-year-old. That's the oldest whiskey we've got. We haven't got any more 21-year-old. And a lady in the tour said, why don't you just make some more? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, it, you know, it's simple logic that we are running out of old whiskey, therefore prices have gone up, therefore things like Macallan, where they can put older casks into things, prices, the demand, supply, blah, blah, blah. Uh, McAllen has now just opened a, a phenomenally large distillery and time will catch up with them and they will have enough supply to come back to uh, more, um, what's the word, uh, uh, obtainable levels of pricing, shall um, we say, yeah. the, the more er- everyday level. So things will even out in that respect, but, but you know, uh, all the stuff will continue to rise. If you go back 10 years, the idea of spending over <laughs> 100 pounds for an old whiskey was, you know, almost unheard of. Yep. I remember buying Macallan 25-year-old for 95 pounds. Wow. Um, yep. Wow. And, and at the time, thinking, oh, my God, that, you know, gee, what could I do with that kind of money? Yep. yep. That same bottle now is a couple grand, whatever it is, three, four thousand. Yep. So, yeah, th- that will change. And those companies that have continually kept themselves... Uh, um, in the affordable range will maintain that. They've, they've ploughed their field and I don't think there'll be much change for them uh, with, with the pricing structure. Um, if you're in the UK, tax takes up so much of it anyway that there's not much you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, By the time you've done your basic packaging and everything, tax then adds so much more on that you can never be under a certain pricing unless you want to lose money. 
Um, but what, what kind of percent? Just for our listeners, what kind of percentage of tax in the UK can they they see on a bottle? Uh, if you're buying a bottle at forty six percent, the alcohol tax I think is eight pounds something, and then we've got twenty percent VAT on top of that. So you're talking around ten pounds tax before you've even begun to buy a bottle, put a cork in it, label it, and yep. then fill it with whiskey, yep. and then if you've made any money, if the distributor's made any money, and the retailer's made any money. So if you buy a, a malt at a supermarket over here for £25, you can knock off 10 of that before they've even begun. Gotcha. Wow. Given what you were just saying a moment ago about whiskey history, we've seen the booms, we've seen the busts. Um, with your finger on the pulse, do you see a, a bust? Do you see... You seem to be talking in a way that you see a leveling off or a returning to base. You don't seem to be talking about seeing a bust where whiskey lovers, fanatics, connoisseurs will move on to rum or gin, vodka. Um, you don't seem to be talking in those ways. Do you see a bust coming? Do you, do you see this leading um, to closures? Yes and no. And the, the entire, from, from what I can see, and I, I, I do not travel all the world and see all the markets, but, but my little understanding of it is that the world is drinking better quality of almost everything they drink. So the beer industry in the last 20 years, take the American beer industry, from being the, the brunt of all jokes, mm -hmm. you know, the old Monty Python joke, I won't uh -huh. do it again. Sex in a canoe. Yep. Um, <laughs> from being the brunt of all jokes to now being to the point where their brewers are shipped in all over the world as consultants because they make the best beer. Yeah. They have the best ingredients, blah, blah, blah. The world is drinking better quality of almost everything. And... Uh, that means that the bust could come in the, the Scotch whisky industry uh, and other whisky industries um, too are propped up by the less expensive sector of that market. You know, most of my tastings, I still tell people that about 10%, or just less than 10% of all the Scotch whisky drunk in the world is malt whisky. That means that 90% is blended and a lot of that 90% is at the more affordable level that could be where the bust is. If mm. new markets are not sought for those um, cheaper, more affordable brands, uh, for that stock to find a way into the market, what will those companies do with it? Mm. If you are sat on 5 million litres of young grain yeah. and 2 million litres of malt, and we have another Spain, which was an enormous whiskey market, and just plummeted overnight. Imagine France doing that. The biggest drinking market yeah. in the whole world. That, when, that could be a huge problem for the industry. When, when did that crash happen in, in Spain? The recession, 2007. Yeah, okay. And it was, I mean, it was almost overnight. It really was. Spain yeah. grew and grew, and I think at one point was the biggest market in the world for consumption of Scotch whiskey. Recession hit, and boom, just the wow. bottom that. Mm. Now, other markets, funnily enough, at the time, picked up some of the slack, um, and France has continued to do well. But the French market is uh, coming on leaps and bounds for the higher-end stuff. Mm -hmm. And if they're drinking uh, taste change, and I'll give you an example of it. You look at the sherry industry. 
that was propped up predominantly by the British and Dutch drinkers and to a certain extent the American drinkers. And their demographic changed within a decade or two decades. And now sherry sales are... Yep, in the very bottom of the toilet. Yeah, you, you, you count them on an abacus rather than a <laughs> computer. You know, it's... Uh, Sadly. If that's what happens, if your demographic changes, if, you, if your main market, if you've got all your eggs in a, in a couple baskets and one of those baskets falls and you can't get another basket up... Um, then that's where I can see a bust happening. What would that mean? Well, that would mean maybe a couple of grain distillery closures. It would mean some of the fillers of malt distilleries closing. Um, but we're talking about big, big companies, and they have much cleverer minds than me looking into all of this. And um, I'm sure they've already done their risk analysis and things like that. So the industry's never been in better health. Uh, it's never had a more careful view on the future and and i'm talking here about the big companies i'm not talking about the plethora of new distilleries that have started up yeah. many of them i think have been started on the back of the sale of brewer cladi that mm-hmm. enormous return of the investment that, sure you know in 11 years whatever it was um so so yeah you you've got that possible bust and of course we know what the boom is the boom is all these malt whiskies coming out almost every single distillery now that makes malt whiskey has a malt brand there is possibly never been a time in history where that's ever happened. Hmm. There isn't at the moment because there's still a couple. But, yeah. you know, we're closest to it now than we've ever been. And uh, the desire to try them all is what's driving it. Which is the perfect lead-in oh. to a question I was going to ask Oh, I'm all you. about the segment. Let's see if it's the same question I had. <laughs> you go ahead. So a few episodes after we spoke with you, we spoke with Mark Watt. <clears throat> never heard of him. And as we, former colleague, and as we um, dis- discussed with you in terms of independent bottling, then we had the Cadenets conversation uh, with Mark. He was kind of pointing out that at the independent bottling level, single casts, natural cast strength, there's not really a lot of loyalty there where somebody who's buying from independent bottlers is maybe chasing a particular distillery or a few distilleries. I get the sense with you in observing Creative Whiskey Company that you do have a following. You do seem to have a loyal group of fanatics in numerous countries across the world who are following your bottlings. So my question to you is, how much do you see the independent bottling fan is happy to buy from you, buy from Signatory, buy from Cadenheads, buy from us, Single Cast Nation, and how much you think they're willing to dive right in, focused on David Sturt's latest release? It's funny, because <laughs> if, if you'd said to me, who do I think has the most loyal following, <laughs> I would say Cadenheads. Um, and Mark, uh, Mark has done more than probably anybody else in their history to achieve that. Yeah, mm. agreed. And yep. Mark, if you're listening, uh, I want another big fat check for that. Yes. <laughs> um, There's a crisp five pound note. Oh, five pounds, jeez. Jeez. Mm. Yeah. How'd you, you haggle him up to that? <laughs> no, I, it's, a, it's a funny one. And, and it's, it's hard to sort of uh, ever quantify in any way because I don't, sadly get enough time on the ground floor if you will to to talk to people who buy my whiskies to find out what their purchase process is um do i believe that i have a cult following no not at all uh 
Really? Yeah, even, oh. even with my inflated ego. Um, <laughs> I'll disagree with that. And Facebook page that <laughs> yeah. seems to have people falling over themselves. I, I occasionally get from some people, um, I really trust your palate, uh, which is phenomenally gratifying. Uh, but then I will always tell people, look, you know, it's, it's what you like, it's not what I like. Mm-hmm. If, if you buy a, a whiskey of mine, you don't like it, you know, that's just... That's just the way it goes. If you really don't like it, you let me know and I'll, and I'll try my best to, to, to swap it. But um, cult following. Do you know, it's funny. I, I want to touch on that a little bit because there is this idea, as there are with distilleries, that there were halcyon days and in those there were um, master cask selectors, for want of a better phrase. Mm-hmm. And uh, take... For instance, take Samaroli, okay? Yep. A name I came across 20 years ago, came across, of course, in my Cadenhead days, and by that point, we weren't supplying them anymore. Uh, all the supply to him was pre-my time. But here was a name, and I never got to meet him either, sadly. I wish I could have. But here was a name of somebody that was bandied about as being um, just superior in their, in their knowledge, in their cast selection, in their ability, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Now, I will not disparage that. I'm not going to go against that. But let me put it this, this way too. Whoever says that, when Samaroli was buying those casks of Springbank and Ardbeg and Laphroaig, yeah. <sighs> he had no competition. And more, he had open warehouses. Yeah. He had guys ringing him up, asking him if he would like to buy another cask of 1967 Ardbeg. Now... <laughs> I don't believe for one second that Sam Aroli and even Andrew Simonton in his early days when he also was very, uh, what's the word I want? Lucky, I guess. Mm. Now, I don't want to say anything. He's not lucky. He's one of the hardest working people in the industry and he's where he is now because of that. But um, he was very lucky because at the time there was all this whiskey to sell. But the reverse of that is they, they didn't just fly off the shelves, these things. They were a hard sell at the time. I mean, geez, I remember working for Cadenheads when I couldn't sell Dallas Do. Imagine oh. that. <laughs> well, they shut it for a reason, right? Yeah, you couldn't. You couldn't we had, yeah, uh, had Glenolbin returned from the US because the importer couldn't sell. I mean, this is what it's, wow. this is the difference. Yeah. So uh, there is this idea now that we have lost some ability to pick casks and that there was a time when there were great cask selectors. There weren't. There was a time when there were greater casks available. There was a wider variety. There were stunning sherry casks. There were all these other things that were on offer, and you could pick them. You could go in and say yay or nay to two different 1975 Lafroigs because the warehouse was open yeah. uh, and the tills were ringing. Um, so this idea of a cult following, I, I think, no, I, I, don't, I, I don't see that personally. As a buyer myself, I am... Persuaded most by the distillery name, by what the retailer tells me, mostly by the retailer. I will often go into a shop, my, one of my favorites still is Good Spirits. I'll go in, if it's Roddy or, or Matthew, I'll say, What? Recommend me something. Yeah. You know me, you know what I like. Yeah. Uh, and I don't care if it's uh, Gordon McFell, I don't care if it's distillery bottling, I don't care if they bottle it themselves. If it's good, I can afford it. And quite often, because I'm lucky, they'll let me try it. I'll buy it. <laughs> so th- there's no. Um, 
I don't see any loyalty. The reason that companies like myself and Cadenheads and everybody else does the festivals is to take what we have on offer and hope that you get some of what we do. Yeah, sure. Get an idea. Sure. But um, I don't. I certainly don't feel like I, if I have a cult following, fantastic. Hello to all of you, all yeah. three of you. Hope you're listening. No, I, I, but, I think um, you definitely do. I think the blends that you're putting out, I think the exclusive blends with a 1980s and a 1990s and one of the 97s that we tasted today, um, I, I think those absolutely have a cult following that is incredibly loyal uh, to what's going into the bottle. So kudos to you yeah. on those. Um, well, I can take no credit for those because I didn't blend them. But uh, <laughs> but it's selection, right? It's still the independent yeah, bottle yeah. making. I saved them from right? anonymity. So look, just quickly back to you know, the the old days with Samaroli having access to these you know amazing casks and, and everybody's warehouses were open and Cadden heads and, and all these. That from an independent bottler's perspective of access to whiskey sounds like a, a heyday of independent bottling. By extension, saying that that's all gone away, it sort of paints this slightly dire picture of the situation that some independent bottlers may be in today. What do you see as, as a hopeful spot for independent bottlers? What's, I mean, obviously it's changed, but what, what gives you hope as an independent Joanna. bottler to, to keep going? <laughs> David Sturk, you're our only hope. <laughs> <laughs> help me, David Sturk. He once helped my uncle. Told you I did the whole movie. Um, now that is a brilliant question. Um, they were Easy. heady days. They were. It was. You know, if I could, if I could do a share and turn back time. Uh, if I can turn. Yeah. And now um, all I can do is imagine David Sturk in Cher's outfit. Oh my god! Video. Oh, stop! Now I'm imagining me in the outfit. Oh. <laughs> my brother, my brother worked on that boat, I'm cleaning it. I think for weeks. Anyway. Um, <laughs> if I could find a way. This is all getting cut. <laughs> this is exactly what's staying in. This is the only part that's staying. What gives me hope? To, to be honest, what gives me hope is every single time uh, I walk into a Cadenhead shop, I, I leave with a bottle. Every time I walk into Good Spirits Company, I leave with a bottle. Every time I go on a tour of anywhere, I leave with bottles. Mm. Um, I have a lot of bottles now. Too much to drink. Uh, I'll, get, I'll work through though. When people come visit me, most of the time, they'll leave with a bottle. If I'm doing a tasting, yeah. nine yeah. out of ten people leave with a bottle. So we can't rest on what history gave us because mm. you only get to go to things like the old and rare or Limburg a couple of times a year to try them. Yeah. And then you go home and you find divorce papers because you've just spent the family <laughs> savings on trying these whiskies. Uh, it, if you think that whiskey never ever got better than the 60s and 70s, you need deep pockets. And you're probably right. That probably was the ultimate period for malt whiskey. But they will run out and you will run out buying them and you will run out of money buying them unless yeah. you're Bill Gates. Last I heard, he doesn't drink that kind of stuff, thank God. But th there is something else. Somebody's doing something else. Uh, yeah. Gordon McPhail are releasing a nine-year-old Bunahaven that will knock your socks off. Cadenheads are digging things out of the warehouse I think they forgot they had and it's knocking your socks off and it's affordable and it's brilliant. Mm. Um, Signatory is still somehow finding casks that are just outstanding and st stellar. Uh, every 
bottler really has something that they do every now and again that for you at that moment is yeah. going to, uh, you know, just send you into a reel of ecstasy. I mean, I remember going to this just mad tasting of malt stock with this weird guy from America and he had this unbelievable Milton Duff nine-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and as much as I wanted to hate the tasting and hate the guy... <laughs> Just that whiskey. I can still taste it. You know, nine years old. Wow. Yeah. I I had heard from many people at Maltstack that that he was actually a favorite. They really liked him. <laughs> well, you know, how, how is how is your dad? <laughs> <laughs> that didn't mean what you thought it meant. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. No, did I, you take the canvas uh, to? to Maltstock? Uh, did I take the canvas? I, I remember the Milton Duff. <laughs> uh, uh, no, Milton Duff, Inchmarin, Lefroig. Okay. And canvas. And okay. the rum. No, no, no. Okay, so not canvas. The rum yep. and then the... And that rum was outstanding too. The Westland and the English oh, the Westland. Company. Yes. Yes. It was a good time. So that's what gives me hope. doesn't matter who the company is. Uh, I remember I had a, a Klein Leash from Weems not so long ago. Oh, Outstanding. Um, I had a Garn Heath from Vintage Malt Whiskey Company. Oh, tell you what, I, I actually tried to, I, wow. I tried to, you know, beg and borrow a cask of Garn Heath from Andrew, but he'd run out. So if you see Garn Heath, get it. Phenomenal. That's green whiskey. Um, so given that Josh and I are uh, in business together and he's the optimist and I'm the pessimist, I'm the realist and you are the pessimist. <laughs> I remain the pessimist. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've always advocated for Scottish independent bottling is that you could have a distillery name front and centre, and it was always the peak behind the curtain. And we've always contrasted that with American independent bottling, which was, don't use the name. Tell any story you want, just don't use our distillery name. As we have discussed and seen and observed and lamented... Some Scottish distilleries are moving in the direction of, do not use our name on this. I absolutely lament that development. Where do you stand on that, sir? Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. I've never thought about it with the American industry versus uh, the Scotch industry. But you've got massive brands in America that were non-existent. I'm not going to name any, but you, you did. Uh, and then some built the distillery later and tried to claim and mm-hmm. let me just interject really quickly here I, I i think we need to be clear about the verbiage because an independent bottler suggests a bottling company that highlights you know the, the distilleries that classic scottish tradition where the american tradition brand owner it's a it's it's what's called a non-distiller producer yeah ndps ndp like high west like smooth ambler like templeton you know you can keep on naming brands out there, but but they're they're non-distiller producers, and and so I want to be very clear. That the good thing is, though, Josh, good... you're in Scotland, so they're independent bottlers over here. We don't have NDPs; we have independent bottlers. You either are or you aren't. If you've got a distillery, you're a proprietary brand. Yeah. Otherwise, you're an independent bottler. Yeah, we we discussed just an episode or two ago about someone like Compass Box fitting the NDP um, category. Because they're creating a brand out of blending, you know, from many different distillers. They've got their oak cross, they have their spice tree, so on and so forth. 
And yes, they're independently bottling whiskeys from many distilleries, but they're creating products that are, you know, standalone, always available. They're not distilling it, they're producing it, hence NDP. And so I think Compass Box is, is a good example of what High West does when they have, say, their double rye, where they're, they're marrying two-year-old rye with 16-year-old rye and then sometimes, you know, extra maturing it in various casks and, and so on. So I wonder what John would prefer to be called. Yeah, that's a good question. When well, you interview him, ask him. We will one of these days. If you can, so pin, I, if you can pin him down. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to sort of put a, right. a speed bump into that. Well, I suppose it, there. you I need just, to clarify. I think yeah. there is a big difference. You need to clarify. The, the Van Winkle family were in, were and are, I think, hmm. technically independent bottlers. You know, the, they they weren't distilling their own stuff, were they? No, but it, but you know, they're they're contracting out a distillery to say this is our mash bill preference. Here's our cask preference. <laughs> And, yeah, I don't even know what you'd call them because they're not even really producing it. I mean, they're having someone distill it, mature it. Yeah. But if there are specification demands, then you're looking at a contract distiller. Yeah. Which we tend not to have over here, funnily enough. You do swaps and trades and blending portfolios. but uh, Yeah, we we just had it with uh, Tipperary, the new... uh, Stuart and Jen Nickerson enterprise with some contract distilling going on in there mm, yeah, um, yep. to give an idea yeah, a lot of more, what to There's a lot more of that, what do you say, NDP yeah. in yeah. Ireland at the yep. moment. Yep. And that's simply because, you know, the, they don't have the portfolio of distilleries to, to do any independent bottlings like we do. You know, how, yeah. many, how many are working in Scotland? About 90-something or other. Yeah. In Ireland, there were three. Yeah. yeah. And one was owned by a company and that didn't let anything out. The other one was owned by a company that didn't let anything out. So there was one, really. You yep. know, it's, uh, it was tough. Um, so uh, the confusion, I think, there is that some have tried to sort of almost pass off as their own, where there's been a little bit of trouble. Well, there's some American brands that got <laughs> in yes. trouble as well, right? Didn't, didn't Templeton get sued? Uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't want to put that name out there, but <laughs> you did it for me, so thank you. You can cut it. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so I, I derailed your question. Can you... Yeah, just what what do we lose when oh the names uh, when yes Scottish yeah, independent when... bottlers cannot put a name on a label? I'm torn on this one. I'm torn because I am a name hunter. Uh, if I go into a shop and I see an Adelphi Klein leash, my wallet is already half open. <laughs> yeah, I just um, sent Joshua one of those yeah. for Hanukkah. Thank you again. Just Joshua. Is that all, the only one you love, eh? How, how was your Hanukkah? It was Kleinishless, <laughs> lacking in a good bottle of Kleinish. Um So yeah, in one respect, I, I am a, a distillery hunter. The flip side of that, and I've said this for quite a long time, is anybody can buy a cask of Macallan, for want of a better name, and sell it. Mm-hmm. Anybody. I don't care who you are. The recent auctions of casks to the Far East have demonstrated that suddenly it's nothing to do with the quality inside. It's yeah. to do with the cachet and they. Yep. So if I was privy to a warehouse filled with a thousand casks of Macallan, I'm going to retire in a year and I'm going to be very wealthy and I've not done anything. Mm. And that's because Macallan built up a phenomenal reputation around the world of quality and excellence. And I'm simply trading off the back of it. And as an independent bottler, I'm very wary 
of just simply being able to churn out stuff that sells because of the name. Um, it's unfair, it's uh, slightly dishonest, and it really isn't the game that we're in this for. I mm. think independent bottlers exist to show whiskey drinkers what is possible from as many different distilleries as possible. And if there was a sudden amnesty tomorrow and all distillers got together and said, right, we're going to open our doors to independent bottlers, but we are going to create an environment where names cannot be used. So we'll have a mandate or whatever that says, uh, if you use our distillery name, we'll come down here. As an industry, we'll come down here on it like a ton of bricks. Um, but you will get access to pretty much whatever you want within reason. I think I'd have to welcome that with open arms. Because we should be viewed on what we stick in a bottle. Are you a good independent bottler because you've got 10 hard bags in the warehouse? Or are you a good independent bottler because you've bottled, um, and I, I don't want to pick on anybody here, but an inch gower, for yeah. want of a better name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I worked for Cadenheads, I remember bottling an 88 inch gower that was stunning. Still remember it to this day. And people, it sold so fast in the days when I struggled to sell a Dallas do. And that gave me great, you know, satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. I'd always take it to the tasting. Because most people had never had one before. To me, that's the job of an independent bottler. Now, if you take all the names away and we simply have to start doing like an SMWS-style description of each, do you know what? I'd say bring it on. I'd say bring it on. I'd, I'd love it. But, but I think the issue for me is that none of it remains anonymous. So whether you put out a Burnside or a Wardhead or a one point something or a 14 point something or an Orkney, um, there's, there's always a connection to who the distillery is. And it, it strikes me as, as something of a subterfuge that's completely unnecessary. What I do like about your answer is you're deep into this as an independent bottler. And I still feel, and, and Joshua and I are six, seven years into this, I still look at a lot of this as a consumer who's in the privileged position of bottling casks. And as a consumer, whether it's Lafroig or Williamson or Isla, you know, you know, color what you will, you know that it's Lafroig in the bottle. Um, and that's worth pursuing, and that's worth knowing more about. As a consumer, I'd love to see all the Lefroigs named, and I can say that independent bottler chose a good cask of Lefroig, as opposed to your position, which is more, whether we put Lefroig's name on it or not, we call it anything under the sun, was it good whiskey in the bottle? And... And I'm quite partial to that as well. Um, but I, I just, I want to have faith in the distillery name first and foremost, and I can judge the independent bottler on the back of that. The, the problem with that is you are not judging the distillery. And I'll explain what I mean. If you are a, a big enough distillery, you are selling your distillate or trading your distillate, I think they, I don't know if they barter or sell, I yeah. don't know how it works, I've never done it. But let's just assume you're selling your distillate to a third party for their blend. So let's take Lefroy for instance. 
At the beginning of each production year, you might have a contract or a deal or trade with another company that owns a blend. Let's call it Glen Brazil Nut for now. And Glen Brazil Nut needs 100,000 litres of Laphroaig every single year. Yep. So it gets distilled, same way as all Laphroaig, let's assume, same way as all Laphroaig does, put into a tanker, tank it across to Glen Brazil Nut's warehouses. I should have chosen a better name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Anyway. I was looking around here to see what I can't call it yeah, BR now. That's too, rem- too close to another company. So anyway, they're, they're at the warehouses, and it just so happens that that warehouse has very poor casks, that, that production run. Really bad wood. Yep. They don't care. They've got this stuff. They've got to put it in. So yep. in it goes. Yep. Lefroig in that bad wood. Ten years go down the line. Somebody goes, what happened to that Lefroig we put in the bad wood? Oh, let's go try it. Oh, that's, that is awful. Yep. Let's get rid of it. Out it goes into the marketplace. 20 different independent bottlers swoop around it, pick it all up, bottle the whole lot, yep. and out floods a batchload of substandard Lefroig, yep. of which the original distillery now has no control over. Yep. And that is the problem they have. Yep. yep. This stuff is not... If... if Independent bottlers do not rock up at Lefroig and buy a cask of Lefroig, and the distillery manager comes out and says, This is a cracker. Stick yeah. this in a bottle, you'll make us a name. Yeah. They don't need to. They're massive. They're Lefroig. Yeah. This is all third party stuff. And if I owned Lefroig, I'd be annoyed. I'd be annoyed at all of the crap casks yeah. that had been bottled. Now, this is in my little analogy. I'm not saying they exist, I'm not saying they're out there. No. That's why I say there should be or there could be, or there might be, or it could be a good idea if there was an amnesty. If suddenly you could bottle this Isla, couldn't call it what it was, and if you're a bottler that just gets a cask and shoves it in the bottle, yep. you're going to get found out. So that, that's the flip side of it. Correct. Mm. No, and, and I think you're spot on. One of, the, one of the ways we've always sold it is independent bottlers allow you to have a peek behind the curtain, and there are, there are some distilleries where, for whatever reason independent bottlers have been putting out better examples of that distillery than the distillery itself, um, which is the exact... Name them. Name them. <laughs> name, name them. <laughs> which is the exact flip of, of the version you're giving, and I still agree with the version you're giving. Yes, it, it, there's no easy answer to this. Yeah. You've also got to bear in mind that the independent world of whiskey is 200 years old. Correct. Yeah. No yeah. independent bottlers, no Johnny Walker, no Shivas Regal. Yep. They were independent bottlers. They started as traders who bought in barrels and then created their own brand from blending other people's whiskey together. Yep. So if you are the owner of Johnny Walker and you take a dim view of independent bottlers, you don't know your history. Yep. Uh, and I do find it quite funny when independent bottlers buy a distillery, they suddenly stop all casks of that said distillery going into the market. Would I do the same? I probably would. So <laughs> I won't be too hypocritical about it, but it is, it is funny when that happens. But yeah, uh, it's an old industry. It's been around for a long time, personally, and for as long as I've been in the industry, I, I absolutely 100% believe independent bottlers add an incredible amount to the category and in some cases to the development of brands. 100%. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think some companies do themselves a disservice by treating independent bottlers as some sort of um, uh, scavenger yeah. uh, parasite yep. Who, yeah. who see us as living off scraps, as if somehow we don't care. Yep. 
I think in some instances we care more about it than the people making it because sometimes mm-hmm. you're working in a factory, you clock in and clock out. Sometimes, yep. occasionally. Yeah. Well, I think it was Mark Watts' line, and I don't know if it made it into the episode or not, which He's is... He's going to know. Right. <laughs> in terms of... In times of boom, independent bottlers are the industry's worst enemy. And in times of bust, independent bottlers are the industry's best friend. And that's a very interesting right. way... We weren't, we weren't frowned upon when that whiskey lock was... Uh... Right. Meanwhile, at the Legion of Doom... Not now! Okay. We want another misconception? Can I say the misconceptions? I mis- think we start... Okay. The, oh, mi- you, the misconceptions, you... these guys know what they're doing? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so we are a year into our initial conversation, and I think your initial misconception was age equals quality. I think okay. that's what it was. I mean, it sounds like something I'd say. We're, we're, you know, we're we're going with the fault of memory here, but it's uh, not my chat up line now, of course. So, what is uh, in the past year? What have you heard that has gotten you to say, "Where on God's green earth did you hear that?" Well, other than the caramel coloring, oh, there's been loads, but nothing springs to mind. What what I have been harping on about in my tastings a lot. And I think, did, did you go to my tasting at Maltstock? At Maltstock, yeah. yeah. So I said this at Maltstock too, and Mark uh, ranted at me for taking half of his uh, campfire speech away. <laughs> I, I personally believe there is a misconception that there are people with a God-given or natural talent at telling them what they are going to want to drink. Hmm. And it happens in most... Uh, hedonistic in industries wine is even worse you know, america suffered for years with the parker the parkerization oh, yeah. of the wine yeah, yeah, industry yeah. Yeah. but there there are people who look to certain people for guidance on what they're going to like and I, I i didn't do it when i started uh and most people i i work around and, and enjoy company of didn't do it trust me there is nobody better at telling you what you're going to like than you I don't care how many books, tasting notes you're going to read, how many magazines, how many people you follow on whatever, until you go out and try enough. Yeah. Uh, and that's the key. Don't have three whiskeys and say you hate whiskey. Don't have three bourbons and say you hate bourbon. Um, and don't sit there with a wheated bourbon and tell me you don't like grain whiskey from Scotland. Because <laughs> that, that really gets my goat. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You're going to tell you what you like. And it's a voyage of discovery. Go to tastings. Go, go talk to yeah. retailers. Go anywhere where they're pouring and you can try. Um, sign up to clubs. Join things. Go to festivals. Go to Isla. Definitely. Mm. All those people, oh, I don't like Isla whiskey. Go to Isla. You'll leave liking it. Oh, Trust yeah. me. Oh, yeah. yeah. You'll like the place. Go to Kentucky. I've never been, but I have to go one day. Go to Westland. Go anywhere. Go try these things. Go smell them in their environment. Go taste them at the source. And then you can decide. Uh, and you'll also be better uh, informed to read other people's taste notes and get things from them and things yeah, like that. I, I was, so that's what I was going to say is when I started my journey into whiskey and trying to you know, grasp the flavors and what I liked and what I didn't like, I read what was available at the time. You, you, you had Surge at Whiskey Fun. You had Sam Simmons with um, Dr. Whiskey. 
I think Ruben was just coming online sometime. Whiskey Nights. Yeah, same time then, as us, yeah. Right? And I found myself, I said, well, I like whiskey. So I tried a few. I said, oh, I like this. I want to go down that rabbit hole. And I would try more and more. And then I would compare what I was tasting to what people were writing. So sort of taking it from the other end of what you're saying, you know, don't just read something and say, oh, they've got really good notes. They gave it a score of 93 and, and this is going to be good. If Serge at Whiskey Fun gives a whiskey 89 points and says, this is fantastic, it could be a terrible whiskey to me or I could like it even more than his 89 points. It's, I, I think you're right. You want to go to what do you like and then see what other people think about it and these people, like Serge, who have been doing it for, for quite a long time, maybe you'll like what they like. If you find your palate lines up with his or with Rubens or with whoever, then, then you can sort of follow their lead. And, and I take that also with independent bottlers, where, you know, if I really liked this exclusive malt and that one and then this one, I say, okay, my tastes align with David Sturks. That makes sense. You can join the cult. Right. You, you, wait, I'm sorry. Say that you again. can join the cult. Yes, I can <laughs> join the cult. Yeah, four members um, now. So, so I think it's, it's sort of that similar approach, but you have to trust your own palate. Yeah. You, you need I to should point out there's absolutely nothing. I read Serge's blog all the time. I love his writing. I think he's a very funny guy. I like him a lot. Um, he's very, very good for the industry, and he always caveats everything with, this is my opinion. If you don't yeah. agree with it, yeah. I don't care. It's my opinion. Uh, don't, don't take it as gospel. And they're great. They're great fun. Read them. But by all means, don't look to these things. If some Wally wants to give a whiskey, a whiskey of the year title, it means nothing. Yeah, yeah it exactly. means zero. It means absolutely, it means he has tried a lot of whiskeys, but not all of them. And he wants to make, you know, he wants to sell something or he wants to make himself appear, whatever. There is no such thing as whiskey of the year. There is no such thing as most beautiful woman in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it doesn't exist. Tell that to the Japanese whiskey boom. (laughs) But it's amazing what then correlates to sales. Well, and this is why I fight against it. Yeah. This is why I fight against it, because it shouldn't. It shouldn't, uh, you know. As soon as your Irish whiskey in the U.S. scored, what, 95, 96 points with Whiskey Advocate, places that were humming and hawing over bringing in an order couldn't bring in enough cases Mm -hmm. and there was not enough to go around it's it's such a shame for me personally i think it's it it is i suppose people need something there are so many whiskeys they need something to to differentiate yeah like it or lump it in the u.s market the consumer looks for awards and they really pay attention to it they need to know that someone respected has given it the stamp of approval, which I think gets back to something you had posted on Facebook a little while back where people wanted to know the tasting notes like uh, of your whiskeys, like what's going on with this? And you saw it as a, a very American... Oh, 10 to 1. ...thing, right? 10 to 1, yeah. And... I think it's more that I have to change than the industry because it is so, uh, it's, it's everywhere, yeah. it, especially in the US. Oh, yeah. I think Europeans tend to be a lot more um, uh, suspicious and uh, cynical of certainly awards. 
you know, we, we want to know, well, what else was in the award? Why, you know, did everybody get a gold award? How much did you pay yeah, for the gold yeah. award? Did you get a double gold? Well, that means nothing. What are, you know, we're, we're, the Europeans are much more uh, that inclined. And, I, and I'm like, I am going to have to fight it for the US market because it's too evident that it's too important. It's incredibly important. And the problem I have is I've built my business up on not sending samples out, not yep. entering competitions, yep. not... Yep trying to appear superior in any way, shape, or form. I've been trying to, whether my ego gets in the way, I have no idea, but I don't, because I don't believe in them, I've never subscribed to them. But I also think, in, and we've talked about this internally, where Americans tend to go to a whiskey festival and drink what they've got in their cabinet, and I get the feeling that when Europeans... It's crazy, right? I get the feeling that when it's Europeans go to whiskey festivals, it's to try new stuff. Mm. Oh, here's Creative Whiskey Company. I haven't had them before. I wonder what I think. Whereas in an American show, there's a chance somebody goes out and goes, I'm a Creative Whiskey Company. I've never had that before. Here's Lagavulin 16 over here. I've got that at home. I'll go drink some Lagavulin 16. I will disagree with that to, at least when it comes to the Jubilee. Oh, because I wasn't naming names. Yeah, okay. <laughs> One of the things that, that we hear more often than not is what an eclectic pour list you have. I tried a whiskeys I'd never even heard of before, and, and that's what we go for. And, and so I don't know if we're bringing in a different clientele. I don't know what the story is, but that is what we hear. I cannot, I cannot imagine going to a festival and drinking something I have That's a bottle of It's the last thing I want to home. do. I, I remember going to a festival and a stand, no names mentioned, but we talked about it a lot earlier. They're from Isla. They had three bottles in their stand, and I literally had every single one of them open at home. Yeah. And behind them, they had one I had not tried, but they were not opening it, that, that festival. I said, well, why am I here? Why did I? This is many, many years ago. Why am I here? Those I can get in, in the supermarkets. Why bring those to a festival? Yeah. Why yeah. did they have one they weren't opening? To, to show their range. They had, a, they had four at the time. <laughs> four whiskeys. <laughs> no, it was expensive, that one. That was, you know, at least £35 a bottle or yeah, something. Right. Yeah. But just, uh, you know, the, the yeah. times change from that. But I cannot imagine going to a festival, unless it's something that you had 10 years ago and you want to see if it, then, then yeah, fair enough. But to me, festivals, uh, Seattle's a good example. Uh, the Jubilee in Seattle. My stand was opposite Copperworks. Mm -hmm. Oh, fantastic. What a phenomenal whiskey that was. So unique. I tried it three or four times. Awesome. Um, brilliant. Uh, and something I never had before. Yeah. That's why I go to yeah. a festival. Yeah. Really, yeah. I should have been working on the stand. But, you know. You've got people for I, that now. You're successful. I, cho I chose my, I didn't actually. I chose my time carefully. <laughs> yeah. But if I can give one piece of advice to anybody who listens to this, especially you young men, if you go to a festival and there are 50, 60, 100 whiskeys, 200 whiskeys, if your intention is to go straight to the Ardbeg or Lafroix stand, you're an idiot. <laughs> Plain and simple, you are an idiot. The rest of the evening is going to taste of Ardbeg or yeah, Lafroix. You yep. need to give yourself it, yeah. at least half an hour. Go try something else. Go pick out a brand you've never heard of. Give it a go. Because quite frankly, even if you don't like it, the Ardbeg or Lafroix will wash the glass out for you and you'll still taste the Ardbeg or Lafroix. But for those friend. guys that race straight in and go straight to the Ardbeg stand, not to put anything against Ardbeg, which is great whiskey, you, you, you know, it's like going to a fine restaurant and ordering the ice cream first. You are an idiot. <laughs> Don't do it. Anyway, there we are. 
Well, cheers. On that bombshell. Yeah, on that bombshell. Boom! Here on that. So thank you so much again to David exactly. for your time, for your friendship. Right? What else are we thanking him for? His good humor. He is funny. <laughs> <laughs> Helps if you're a dad. The, the dad jokes make more sense if you're a dad. <laughs> it's actually true. So one, one of the nice things, uh, and I told you I didn't tell the listeners this, is this past week. Exactly. I was with David uh, throughout the Northeast. I was hosting him in New York and Massachusetts and Connecticut and... And through various snowstorms as well, man, did we get pummeled, pummeled on the Wednesday? Uh, were you guys sharing a room? No, so so we were actually we were meant to do an event. Easy, I just caught that you you. <laughs> um, so we were meant to do an event at Julio's in Massachusetts, and it got canceled because of the snow. Oh, wow. That's so, serious. Yeah, so we ended up driving back to Connecticut, where where I live. We were supposed to get one to four inches, and we ended up getting 17 inches of snow. And we drove through all 17 inches of the snow on the way back. That's serious. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so getting to spend some time with him, speaking of jokes and dad jokes, he tells <laughs> a good many jokes, which were quite nice. Do you have a favorite from the trip that you just took that you'd like to regale oh us gosh. with? Not yeah. to put you on the spot. Can I do you think he'll be mad at me? This so long as I, w- I would recommend PG thirteen and we fully apply it, attach it, ownership, David Stark. Okay. So this is a short one. Uh-huh. And so d- just so everybody knows, David is a Yorkshireman who when it comes to frugality, <laughs> right? The Scots are known for being frugal or tight or not loose with their money. The, my people, the Jews, the same. I think if you break it down, every single people person will say, oh, our people are known for being cheap. I think everybody's <laughs> cheap. But anyway, so, he's, he's, so he, we're in a group of many people, and he says, um, why do Yorkshiremen have blue penises? Oh, gosh. Okay. Show this PG-13. Carry on. Because they're tight-fisted wankers. Oh, my word. (laughs) (laughs) Wanker, for those of you who don't know, is a colloquialism for masturbation. (laughs) So, anyway, uh, before we close out here, first thing I want to say is, again, thank you to David. Secondly, uh, please go to iTunes and give us some nice ratings, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, We've got a wonderful amount of five stars and we're getting up in the rankings we're getting more and more listeners which is fantastic and and you all have been such a great help going to itunes giving us five star ratings and saying nice things so if you wouldn't mind continuing to do that if you haven't done it already please go ahead and do that and please reach out to us as well and i'm going to give you a a multitude of ways in which to do so. I was about to ask you, Joshua, how do people reach out to us? <laughs> uh, you can email us, right? Mm-hmm. One Nation. No. Under Whiskey. No. At questions.com. No. <laughs> it's questions at one nation under whiskey.com. <laughs> or you can. Nailed it. it. <laughs> you can Instagram us at one nation under whiskey.com. Okay. You can tweet at us. <laughs> At One Nation Whiskey, 
Facebook.com. So forget the unders, just at One Nation Whiskey. And actually, our good friend Natalie recently messaged us to add a question, and we'll answer that in the next podcast. Yeah, looking forward to seeing Natalie and Liz this week. Yes. That'll be fun to see them. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and then there's two other ways, and both of them are via Facebook. You can go to our Facebook page, just facebook.com slash One Nation Under Whiskey, or just search for our group which is the One Nation Under Whiskey group. And we have a little over 300 people in that group right now. And post a question, whatever you want to do. That's awesome. Uh, 300 people. That's nice. Yeah, yeah, not too bad. That's nice. So, Jason, we need to close out here, but is there anything that you wanted to add? Nope. I was just going to say we got to dash off to a single cast nation tasting at the Barrel Thief in Fremont. So let's wrap this up, let the people go about their days, and we'll be back with... Whiskey Jubilee recap episode and the live episode oh, from Westland. Man, oh man, Exciting times. Cheers to the readers and cheers to you, Joshua. Cheers, Jason. Cheers. How do you know? Check. How do you know it's all coming through? Check. I'm watching it come through. You're the, the top. I'm the middle. Jason's, Jason's the bottom. The bottom. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Classic Jason. <laughs> Classic Jason. <laughs> so it's it's officially recording right now. So this will be the Easter egg at the end of the episode. Yeah. <laughs>